So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like the audiobook recording of my entire first novel with each chapter getting like special DVD commentary, you know, exclusive to the Patreon. And I'm actually about halfway through recording my second novel. Yeah. And if you're not one already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Last time, I finished off my two-part interview with David C. Smith, veteran of sword and sorcery authorship, uh, going back to the 70s second wave. Today, I'm speaking with kind of the other end of the spectrum. I'm speaking with my sort of professional young person, as I call her. <laughs> Soph Magliano is... I hesitate to use the word fan because it feels self-aggrandizing, but I don't know, man. I uh, <laughs> She's one of the uh, longer-running fans of my work. We met through the comments section of my YouTube videos back when I used to do that kind of thing, like... Oh, wow, 12 years ago. And I think of her as my professional young person because she's quite a bit younger than me. She was in high school uh, in the comments there. And we've been sort of internet chums ever since. And every once in a while, when I'm like, oh, what are the kids these days doing? I'll be like, oh, Soph, I know. I'll go ask Soph. <laughs> well, after a spirited online conversation with a bunch of fellow sword and sorcery fans about, you know, how do we get more people into this thing? And I was like, yeah, how about more young people and more, well, frankly, non-white men and so on and so forth, you know, like, how do we expand this beyond, like, the main demographic, which seems to be guys who are white and male 35 and up? I thought, hey, what if I did a little bit of market research by sending a half dozen stories, three classic, three contemporary, to my professional young person, Soph, and got her 10 cents on both the stories and what her thoughts would be on how to try and get more people into this genre, this genre I'm writing a novel for. Now, I wouldn't just ask Soph because she's under 35. I'm also asking her because she is a lifelong fan of the overall fantasy genre, and she's in the middle of writing her first ever novel, which is also a fantasy genre work. On top of all that, she is thinking about promotion because she has an Instagram, aka a Bookstagram account. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry, we're going to talk about Bookstagram in the interview, and I'm linking to her account elvin underscore teahouse at elvin underscore teahouse in the show notes so you can click through that to go check it out now you don't have to have read the six stories i assigned her but maybe you would like to or would like to check them out after the interview i've linked to all six in the show notes four of which are available for free online this includes all three of the classic stories which are tower of the elephant by robert e howard classic conan story Black God's Kiss by C.L. Moore, discussed only a few episodes ago with Nicole Emil Haynes in the Feminism and Sword and Sorcery episode. Mzee by Charles Saunders, an Amaro tale. And then we move over to the contemporary stories, which feature The Second Death of Hanavar by Howard Andrew Jones, interviewed in episode 12. The Return of the Sorceress, a novella-length story by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. And The Gate of Mist by Cora Bueller interviewed a few episodes back. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview, where you will hear that Soph is very plainly from Australia, and that something about Australian accents brings out my English one a little bit, so don't be surprised by that. Okay, 
Let's go hear what she has to say. And here I am with professional young person, Soph. Hi, Sophie. Hi. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, too young for this, really. I'm just a little boy. I'm 12, you know. Uh, so I'm coming here to get your help to understand the uh, generation that is young enough that, you know, we want to get them into the sword and sorcery genre and help keep it going, but old enough to have her own money. You know, I just have my little allowance. I do the chores around that. Okay, let's abandon this conceit. I'm 5,000 years old. And... Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why don't we get to know you a little bit? Um, bye. Uh, when someone asked me about this, because I, I, I mentioned this subject to a few friends before coming here to do it, they said, oh, well, how would you describe her taste? I was like, well, she seems to be a lifelong fantasy fan. She's working on her first fantasy novel. And I think I would sort of dub her a Harry Potter kid. I think you're the generation where like that and Tolkien probably are responsible for you getting into reading and fantasy. How would you describe that, though? How would you describe your entry to reading fantasy fiction in general? Yep, that's pretty accurate. I would say that I was a Harry Potter kid for sure, and I was a big fan of it while the books were still coming out as well. So I think like I was in primary school when the fourth book was coming out, and at that stage I'd reread them like as many times as you'd expect a ten year old to. <laughs> I was also a massive Red Wall fan as well. Ah, uh, so you like scenes of people eating then? Okay, yeah, Red Wall. Yeah. yeah, I love it. <laughs> well, it's the same with Tolkien, isn't it? Like, <laughs> true, yeah. Food is a big part of life, and I think we should respect it <laughs> and celebrate it. And, uh, you know, how would you say your tastes have evolved uh, since, you know, you were a kid reading Harry Potter? Firstly, I have stayed away from Harry Potter with recent developments. But, yeah, sorry, has the author yeah. said anything? I don't keep, I don't pay attention to the yeah. news. <laughs> she may have. Has she been on, like, just a mission to destroy all the goodwill? <laughs> I think, yeah, that, that rings a bell. <laughs> yeah, well, who knows? But uh, but aside from that, uh, yeah, yeah, like what, uh, you know, how, how did your chase evolve as you, you know, hit your uh, teen, late teens and 20s and all that? Yeah, I think the biggest evolution for me was getting into Robin Hobb, which most people who know me know I'm a bit of a super fan there, and mm -hmm. caring a lot more about character development rather than plotline as much. So I'm very happy to have slow going provided that I'm seeing a lot of growth from a character. Think, for example, Zuko from Avatar, the last Airbender. <laughs> okay, fair um, enough. Yeah. I don't know uh, Robin the Robin Hobbs. Hobbs. Oh, so she writes The Realm oh. of the Elderlings, and it's like mm -hmm. there's 15 books divided into mostly trilogies, with one being four for some reason, which is the Rainwald Chronicles. So there's four in that series. But, um, yeah, you follow Fitz, the main character, who's a bastard son of a king, through his training to become an assassin and his magical training in that as well. And then you see him later in his life and then you see him later again and you then also see kind of side quests in different areas. And is that kind of progression that you like uh, in Robin's work? Yeah. Or uh, what would you say is, is the thing that's made you go through 15 books? I mean, you don't read 15 if you think they stink, yeah, right? Yeah, and they're, they're pretty chunky as well. I'm not going to lie. They tend to be... On the uh, on the thick side, <laughs> but right, right, yeah, I think it's not necessarily just the character progression. It's you are exclusively, at least in the Fitz ones, inside Fitz's point of view. So you're first person limited, 
And then you're also like really, really seeing what he thinks, how he's reacting to things and how everything around him is forming him as a person. So rather than it necessarily being 100% about, oh, this bastard's doing this to our favourite bastard, (laughs) Um, but (laughs) rather than it being about, yeah, like those bad things happening to him, it's also looking at how he springs back as a person and how that affects him in the long run and then what that does in his life when he's interacting with other people. Okay, well, that's kind of neat because it sounds like, you know, he's he's an outsider, it would be fair to say, and his identity makes his life difficult for yes. him by the sounds of it being a bastard yeah. and all that. But maybe would you say that, like, his identity is also, like, he kind of triumphs because of it, not in spite of it? Um, It's hard. Like, it's very is, hard know? to say stuff without spoiling it because <laughs> of things oh, that happen. okay, well. Well, just broadly yeah. speaking, would you would mm-hmm. you say that that is you know when he when he succeeds in any given situation, yeah. is it being overcoming his inherent you know crapulence, or is it because uh, of who he is? Be, mm. Being a bastard, being an outsider, is what gives him maybe perspective yeah. and strength and skills to to get through. I think what we see a lot of the time is not necessarily even that he's getting through from his own strength. Okay. What we see a lot of the time is that he's consistently doing the wrong thing. And that things are just going very, very wrong. And a lot of these um, trilogies have quite sad and quite tragic endings or like very, very, very depressing moments in them. I think you kind of Mm. see him pushing through those things because he feels duty bound to do it and because he thinks that's what he has to do rather than it necessarily being any triumph of character or anything like that. I think it's more that he has been used as a tool since he was a child. And then he continues to see himself as being that tool moving forward in his life. Okay, see, now I'm regretting not recommending to you a uh, story by Jack Vance from The Dying Earth, particularly from the second and third books, which are just this big mega saga about a character called Kugel, who's a bastard, by which I mean temperament, <laughs> and he's just the worst individual. And it's a, but it's a bunch of little vignettes, essentially, of him very early on becoming the unwitting tool of a wizard who just chucks him to the other side of the world, basically, with something inside him that will stab him if he doesn't do what okay. he wants him to yeah. find, you know, go find. And then he just goes through all these little vignette adventures of him going in, trying to take, you know, trying to take advantage of others <laughs> to get through, and others inevitably turning out to also be kind of awful and trying to take advantage of him, which sounds so dark, but it's really light and funny. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah, it might be up your alley. I'm not saying it's the exact same as what you just mm. described, but it occurs to me, like, that would have been a good sword and sorcery recommendation. Um Oh, well, Uh, I've no regrets over what I did recommend to you. So when we come over to Sword and Sorcery, like when I said it, when anybody says that to you, I'm curious, what do you think? You know, did you come into this with any preconceptions? Like I know one concern uh, cheerleaders of the genre have is people being put off by vague memories of like all these hokey 80s barbarian movies, you know, bad photocopies of the the old Conan film. But I'm wondering if that was even anywhere near your experience as a young Australian. It was not. Actually, the key thing that came up in my mind was the VR game Blade and Sorcery, which is Uh a game in which you have a blade and you can potentially use sorcery to kill your opponents. Right. Well, there you go. I mean, sword and sorcery, um, hang on. The fat boy needs out. Just a sec. (laughs) So cute. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm going to leave that in. Listen, the fat boy is a Siamese cat named Sam who sits beside me during most of my interviews. And if you listen to the Daryl Creog interview, you might just hear the subtle sound of a big pile of vomit he left beside my foot right before the interview began, which uh, we'd had all these technical issues and it was finally working. So I was like, I can't stop. Uh, so that whole interview, red hot 
vomit beside my feet. Anyway, back to the subject at hand. Uh, speaking of red hot vomit, one of the things that's very frustrating for a lot of fans of the sword and sorcery, you know, literary subgenre is the fact that the term has become very diluted over the last, you know, couple of decades. The most popular thing you'll find on Facebook if you search sword and sorcery is nothing to do with the stories. It's a like miniature game. Okay. Just that happens to have swords and sorcerers. And that's the thing. I've seen Tolkien refer to as sword and sorcery, when in many ways, if you get into it, it's like the exact opposite. And so, yeah, there's this kind of dilution of the term. And yeah, so there you go. You, it reminded you of a VR <laughs> game where like people whack each other with swords, which like, it's all good. But yeah, so that literally no preconceptions other than just thinking of a video yeah, game. Yeah, that's eh? right. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, in a weird way, that is kind of encouraging, though, for the other thing, because the other issue that comes up a lot is people uh, worry about it being kind of tainted. Like I say, you know, I, I don't know if I told you this already by email, but in the 80s, there was kind of a bust after the second boom. And part of it was because, like, like anything, when it's something works, you know, publishers will sometimes drive it into the ground. And so, it, you know, a lot of publishers would just drove like these bad clonans, they'd be called, you know, into the ground. And more innovative stuff that was being made in the genre would kind of be lumped in with that and kind of just didn't get a fair shake, which is really sad. So this is kind of whole alternate universe of like what may have been, you know, if, if the clonans hadn't clogged up the works. And there was the film equivalent of it where the Conan movie came out was huge. And it's a good movie. I like it. But even its own sequel was pretty crap and inspired a million really crappy copies, uh, you know, usually made in Italy for very little money. <laughs> and for a long time afterwards, through the, you know, the rest of the 80s, 90s, even 2000s, you know, if you asked, a, especially a North American about sword and sorcery, they'd be like, oh, you mean that stuff? Some, you know, steroid barbarian guy with like a woman wearing no clothes hanging off his leg and the story's just a bunch of crap. And it's such a shame because right through all those years, really cool stuff was being made and pushing the genre further, but it didn't often get fair shake. Anyway, yeah. you get the idea. So it is actually, you know, on the one hand, it's a bummer that, yeah, okay, the term meant nothing to you. On the other hand, it's encouraging that none of that sort of baggage remains. And I think that is the case of most people, uh, especially you know, anybody uh, under 35. For this chat of ours, I assigned you six stories, yes. which prior recording I've already listed off for the listener, and uh, there's links to all that in the show notes, um, which stories really grabbed you and why? Okay, so I think the key of the classics that really grabbed me was Black God's Kiss. And a big reason for this was similar to what I was talking about before with living in a character's head. I felt that we were actually very close to Joyri during that story, and I really enjoyed having like the detailed memory of how she hated the stolen kiss from her, how she hated like this disgusting thing that happened to her. I also. Yeah. You do really get in Jarell's feelings. No, so. yes, exactly. Um, I think that was like really good because then that played off how vague a lot of the descriptions in the tunnel were. So things like just being like black oozing coming up and like, I told you this before, but like giving you real spirited away or like how's moving castle from studio Ghibli vibes. <laughs> I think this really helped because it allowed me to do the imagining myself rather than having it kind of force fed to me, which I'll, I'll spoil something for later. If you're going to ask me, which was my least favorite, which was Tower of the Elephant. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much the yeah. best question. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we can, we can, we can, we can, well, it is the best question. Yeah. We can stir it together. In a pot, yeah. though, sure. Um, 
So Tara the Elephant, I must admit, I, I did mention to a friend uh, yesterday, I was like, oh, yeah, so, you know, by the way, I was the author of uh, one of the stories I sent you, Howard Andrew Jones. I said to him, oh, hey, by the way, she really liked your story. thought you might like that uh, to hear that, you know, before the interview goes up. And he's like, oh, cool. But she didn't like Tower of the Elephant, huh? Well, that makes me sad. And I was like, eh. <laughs> so, all right, so now yeah. uh, make, make a man sad if he's listening. Hi, Howard. Um, yeah, so, all right, so be cruel and horrible. I'm Go ahead. deeply sorry for this. <laughs> Firstly, I really struggled to connect with any of the characters in it. Um, so I kind of felt like I was generally detached from it. I felt like I was almost watching cardboard cutouts do something and be kind of, forced through a maze, which was one of the only things I liked is it really appealed to me, my childhood self, who loved Egyptology, who loved like all those kind of silly like booby trap movies and like that kind of thing. It really appealed to me for that reason. But apart from that, I really felt like I needed more characterization. And I also, yeah, I really just felt like I was reading some cutouts and I needed more space to imagine, honestly. Like when I'm getting these very detailed descriptions of things, I sometimes do find myself kind of tuning out a little bit because it's almost like information overload. So I would like, you know, maybe a little bit more mystery for my own brain to do some work. Well, that's interesting because, um, you know, and there's no wrong feelings, opinions about the stories obviously here, but I'm curious. It's a story published almost 95 years ago, so I'm not even going to bother saying spoilers. Um, <laughs> listener, if you're worried about having the ending ruined to that story, pause now, go, go off and read it. It's a short story. It won't take you a minute and then come back. Um, I think the thing about that story and I, is that it is kind of a trope setter, right? I mean, I don't think it was the first story that opened in an inn, but it really but it opens in an inn. And it does all these things that were probably not as tired in the 30s as they are now. It's also one of those stories that I think is good to read because it has been riffed on ad infinitum. And, you know, I maybe not necessarily a direct thing, but you might go on general feelings of, oh, yeah, this could have been built on in other stuff I've read over the years, you know? Um, one big thing that I was very curious to hear your response to is the reveal, spoilers, of the elephant and the fact that Conan has this kind of deep compassion kind of rise up in him after you've seen him just be a guy who'll kill a dude in a bar and uh, bugger it, you know, I'm going to just climb up into this tower and, oh, this fat guy, thief's going to help me out. Oh, he died. Well, whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he seems very without compassion until he finds this truly strange alien entity and the fact that we're in kind of a fantasy story and then, oh, you know, without using words like spaceship, it makes it very clear this is literally an alien he's found, you know. Um, yeah, and then the very odd ending to the sorcerer and all that stuff, and Conan leaving the end just like, that happened, you know. <laughs> like, woof. Um, that, to me, is the payoff of the story. And and sometimes I've, I've actually recommended that to my dad, and he was like, oh, I couldn't get past the spider. I'm like, you didn't get to the payoff. It's, it's like 5,000 words. <laughs> you know, and he's my dad. I give him grief. Um, you read it all the way through, obviously. Did you did you feel that it at least, like, oh, hang on, what's going on here when that happened? Or was it just like, yeah, okay, alien, alien whatever? You know, how did, how did that yeah. feel to you? Um, it honestly, to me, because of how much he didn't care as he's going through the maze, because of how much nothing affected him. And again, this kind of goes to my cardboard cutout thing. It felt like to me that it was just like, okay, now I need my character to feel compassion. So I'm going to make him feel compassion. <laughs> like it just didn't feel good. So there was no setup. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> it's interesting, you know, I mean, there are good kind of stories and bad, even within the canon of the, the actual original creator. I mean, God, there's so many bad uh, past issues that come later. And if you want to, I mean, I, even though it sounds like probably not, I could recommend you another one and maybe try again. Because okay. funny enough, that was not my favorite story of his. 
I do really like it, but my favorite one is by him is novella length, and I didn't want to load you up with too much to read before this. It's called People of the Black Circle, and uh, maybe I'll toss out your way to read or not read at your leisure. Um, so, you, you know, be curious what you think of that one, because yeah. it does have more time for development and actually has a romance kind of forming stages and stuff, so there's a bit more, you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I wonder if it's the best introduction, because Tower of the Elephant does get thrown around a lot as, as a good one to, to introduce people to. Yeah. But maybe not always, and obviously not everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Conan often does get very philosophical, actually. You'd be surprised. <laughs> and that's part of yeah. why people still talk. No, I know. It's part of why people still talk about the stories, right? There's plenty of other guys who were going in towers and trying to steal things and whatever from those days and then later. But we're not talking about them, yeah. you know? So it's interesting. But yeah, fair enough. It did, it did not... Uh, slap. You young people say things slap, right? That's, uh, that's a I'm word. I'm not quite young enough. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh no! no. I do. I do try. Oh, uh, you know, it was not as lit as I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but it was literature. Yes. Ah, there we go. Now, I, now, imagine me saying that and putting on my cool English teacher, yeah. you know, jacket and glasses. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, okay. Well, well, back to the ones that work yeah. for you. So, Jarell of Jury, uh, she really worked for you as a character yeah. piece. Got to be really in her head, and it is a very. I, I feel funny saying this as a guy talking about a story written by a woman, but I'm not being a dickhead when I say I do think it's a very emotion driven yeah. story. Yeah, and, and and it sounds like that's partly why you. you got yeah, into and I was actually thinking about this when I was kind of compiling my reasons for why I liked certain stories that I read, and all of the stories that I preferred tend to have emotion-driven moments or at least like some more characterization and more thought put into how their characters feel and it just made it more logical to me in a way even though we are talking about emotion here but having that kind of consistent emotion and having like consistent kind of developments in emotion or changes in emotion just helped me to connect mm. the stories a bit better. So I could talk about Black God's Kiss for like mm. an hour. In fact, I, I did in a recent episode. So, <laughs> uh, yep. but we, you know, maybe you and I can talk about this more some other time. I'd love for you to read the. Uh, there's a sequel to okay. that story. Yep. Unusual for the age, there was a direct sequel where she feels kind of awful about what she does to Gim and is like, "Well, maybe if I go back under, I can find a cure. I don't know. Geez, oh, you know, I want I want my kingdom back, and I hated the guy to bits, but this is pretty intense what I just did." <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and when she goes back down, it's completely different. Um, and it's a very interesting sort of two-part. So I should I should send you that if nothing else. Anyway, what uh, what were the other stories? Yes. You mentioned a couple other to me. Yes. So for the newer ones or new school, as I've been calling them to myself, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I like the second death of Hannibal. I did just note down to myself, Hannibal did not in fact die. Spoiler. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just thought uh, <laughs> that I might do that. But I enjoyed the fact that he didn't actually die in comparison to the title. So rather than it being a giant walking <laughs> spoiler, that I was actually like, oh, he didn't die. It was just a play. <laughs> it's just a theatre. I guess, yeah, with a short story, why not? Yeah, you could just kill the guy. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's much more likely than someone trying to build a trilogy, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, what else did you like yeah. about it? So I really liked, surprisingly for me, because I'm actually usually not the biggest fan of these kind of, I'm going to call it a gladiator type of feel where they're kind of put into an arena to fight. I actually really liked it. I think I probably liked it because, again, completely going to misuse terms around the genre here. Go for it. But I liked kind of like almost like the heist element, like this is how we're going to break everyone out. This is what we're going to do. I actually really liked that. I also liked the way that sorcery backfired yes. in the end as well and joining together to defeat this um, being which is what I'm going to call it. Yeah. 
What should I call that? Um, yeah. yeah. I think compared to the others, I've actually thought less about the emotion in this one. It was just a very easy read for me. Like I was reading it and I was in it immediately, which I think is something that's impressive because there are a lot of times that I'm sitting outside a story and just being like, yeah, okay. Well, I won't speak for him too much, but I have had the good fortune to chat with Howard quite a bit. And if I know one thing he really cares about is uh, crafting a quick moving plot. He's really big on pacing. He doesn't have you, the characters sit around and just chat about the weather for 20 minutes and then move on to the adventure or whatever. So I wonder if maybe that's part of what yeah. went through was, uh, you know, so quickly uh, was, was in fact the pacing. You know, there's always one thing leads to the next, leads to the next, leads to the next. Yeah, I think it may have yeah. been, to be honest, which is odd because the Tower of the Elephant, I thought was also quickly paced, but just did not work for me at all. <laughs> That's interesting, huh? And uh, what did you think of, like, you know, would you read another Hanavar story? Yeah, I probably you would. Know, if someone put it yeah. on here. Yeah, I think I would. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, that's, that's uh, there you go, Howard, if you're listening. Because <laughs> uh, uh, he, uh, no, no, they need, no, I don't mean like he needs my encouragement, Jesus. No, I just mean that um, there's more Hanavar stories. They get published uh, in pretty much every issue of the magazine, Tales from the Magician's Skull, which uh, he is the head editor of. And also I know, Howard, it's no secret, he's written a collection of stories, to, a novel's worth. And is currently shopping it round, okay. so fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, what now? What, I think there was a third yes, story that you liked. There was, and this was probably actually my favourite, which was the Gate of Mist. And oh yeah, I think it's just it's very on on brand for me because for me the gatekeepers are a cult, but they're a good guy cult, <laughs> and I love a good cult story. I like going in seeing someone give up themselves essentially to join this cult and then become one with their ways. I actually really also loved the fact that there was a bit of a romance shoehorned in. I wish there was more flagging of it as you went through. <laughs> and again, like the villains being clouds or being mist and just not really being anything is something that I love. I love just being able to think for myself about what this villain looks like or what this villain does. <laughs> like, I feel like often if I'm, again, if I'm fed too much information, I tune out. And that was something that I really enjoyed with this. And again, like, I think with this story as well, we saw a little bit more of the protagonist's mind again, which is something that I like. Okay. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, I interviewed Cora a few episodes back. If you, if you want, you can go you know, learn more about her and her writing and her experience with the genre. And also that that was from Whetstone Magazine, which gets a lot of shout outs on this podcast because it's great. And it's free online. So if you want to go read more stories, uh, I think Cora has another one and another issue actually. But anyway, so it sounds like one element that I, I, you liked uh, in these stories is kind of the weird magic, the weird dark magic that doesn't always work. You know, one thing I really like about uh, the magic in Sword and Sorcery, generally, broadly speaking, of course, is that it tends to be very dangerous, very strange, often horror elements are woven in, and it's barely easily replicable. You know, it's not the kind of fantasy magic where like someone just says the same word every time and every time they, you know, it's like a tool in the toolbox. Oh, that, that that's how they light the torches. They go blah, 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 and that happens. And it's just like science almost, but, you know, from a different angle. It's just, it's a form of technology. I personally... I've enjoyed stories with that in it. I mean, any broad statement I make, there's going to be exceptions if I think hard enough. But broadly speaking, I don't really like that because it makes the fantastic mundane. And what I like about sort of sorcery is that the fantastic kind of stays fantastic and is often contrasted with the groundedness of usually the non-magical, but not always, as you know from one of the stories I sent you, uh, the non-magical hero. 
you know and i mean conan for example is famous for you know he's a big tough guy and he'll fight anybody but as soon as he gets a whiff of the supernatural you know he'll deal with it if he has to but every part of him wants to just get out of there uh, yeah. <laughs> which is i think a kind of a fun contrast with what you might expect you know so i'm curious to the other two stories that didn't really grab you as hard i was very surprised that return of the sorceress was not yes. in your face because i know you really like the author now i'm not asking you to crap on her but why did that particular story not yeah Thank you as hard as maybe I, I would have thought. I was also sh shocked by this because, like you said, I'm a fan of the author and generally have enjoyed her work. I think one of the biggest things for me that was that I struggled so hard to connect with the protagonist for a lot of the story, and it was only really at the end of the story when she starts letting go of a lot of this spite, and that's basically the only thing that we've seen drive her that I started being like, ah, oh, yes, I can kind of get behind this a bit more. But by the same token, I did actually really enjoy a lot of the elements. I really liked her little Nahua conscience and, like, assistant. like Her little, her, her little sort of yeah. um, familiar, yeah. Almost, like a magical familiar, I think. Yeah, and it was, I really enjoyed that because I liked kind of having the Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder um, <laughs> and just – getting a little bit more of the backstory behind this, which is actually what helped me to get into it. But it just really, it was a bit difficult to jump in at first. And I think that was something that I didn't like, but that said, I did overall like it. And I actually liked the fact that this magic system was a little bit harder than the rest of them, as in like, we actually knew the cost to cast and like that kind of thing. Um, I did actually enjoy that because I was like, oh, good. So like everyone's using blood to do this kind of thing. Or like, we've got to do all of this. <laughs> Yeah, I think that was the main thing that I really enjoyed with it, but it just wasn't as strong for me in terms of the story. Okay, interesting. And I didn't walk out of reading it like, oh, yes, this is the best story I've ever read, whereas with some of the other ones I was like, oh, this is actually really good. I would recommend this to someone else. Well, see, part of the reason I'm enjoying hearing you describe your reactions to these stories is, like, I know I'm tainted at this point. I came into that book already a big fan of the genre and already thinking very hard of it as a person writing in that genre. And so I don't know if academic's the right word, but definitely I was not reading it like a reader just coming in cold to enjoy a fun story. And in fact, a big part of me was already kind of like geared up for it because it's very unusual for a sorcerer to be the main character in a sword and sorcery story. They tend to be villains or secondary characters. And there are a couple of very big exceptions. Uh, one of them that's kind of the holy trinity of the uh, sort of first and second wave of sword and sorcery is a guy called Elric. And Elric, I, if I felt like there was room, I definitely would have crammed in one of his stories because he is someone from whom contemporary fantasy has taken a lot. So yeah, Elric, so I guess my point is, sorry, Elric, he uses sorcery, uh, and but he's the exception, not the rule. And when he uses it, it's invariably difficult or comes at a great cost. So yeah, the sorcery in Return of Sorceress, that was um, unusual to have a sorcerer be the main character, as I say, not unknown. And uh, yeah, magic systems. Now that's something else that comes up a lot. Uh, sword and sorcery, a lot of the sort of diehard fans like that there generally isn't one. Okay. You'll get hints and inclinations, you know, oh, this guy doing something magical needed the hair of someone and the stars had to be right. But there's no like, you know, here's how it works. Yeah. Because that's kind of antithetical to the origins and the sort of pulpy horror uh, magazines of the 30s, where the whole idea was to freak people out with the unknown. So if you explain it to death, then it's not unknown anymore, is it? Even if it does something really frightening, even if it's like, oh, well, this is going to destroy the earth or whatever, like that's frightening. But if we know every step of the way, uh, sure, okay, it could be a atom bomb, yeah. you know, or something. Like, why, why did it have to be fantastical? And sometimes we even hear people really musher. I'm curious if you've read this guy. Uh, does Brandon Sanderson mean anything to you? I know who he is. And funnily enough, I've not read him. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've been told to count oh, really? okay. now. And I'm just like, oh, yeah, I will one day. <laughs> oh well, that's funny just because yeah there's a, a lot of sort of grumbling not even about him really but just about the you know why does he get all the attention you know we wish this thing we liked got more attention because uh, especially recently you know he's been quite successful for a while but you maybe heard even without reading him that he did this massive kickstarter yeah yeah for four novels that he published uh so he, he just ripped off in a year which like what the <laughs> hell anyway <laughs> Uh, talking about magic powers um yes. but uh and it's really cool he turned around and then backed like every book related kickstarter you know uh accident when he, when um he won the grand prize there but yeah he's really big on magic systems and explaining them thoroughly and so i think there's an element of that that kind of irks or just kind of you know oh geez you know for sword and sorcery fans who love this thing that is some people think it's day it's past and is antithetical to magic systems yeah. So, yeah, like, how did you feel like none of the other stories had their supernatural elements terribly explained? I mean, you never got like the backstory to the weird underworld beneath the Jarell's castle, for example. Yeah. Did that bother you or, you know, as someone who, who reads more contemporary stuff, which tends to explain it? Or was it kind of like, yeah, whatever? You know? Yeah, it didn't really bother me at all. <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff I've read actually is a bit similar in a way. Like you don't necessarily have the exact source. If we go back to Robin Hobb, right? You don't know the source of the skill or the wit, which are the two magic systems there. Those are just things that happen. And there are inklings of like it being like, oh, maybe it's hereditary, but there's no confirmation as to that. And there's surely enough outliers that you definitely couldn't say that it is 100% hereditary. So it wasn't something that really bothers me at all in a lot of things. And that said, like my own magic system that I'm working on is a little bit harder, but it's between hard and soft. Um, and I don't love the super, super hard magic systems. Like where you, like you said, you know that every time that they do this and they have these amount of ingredients that it's going to be good because to a certain extent to me, that feels like it's just sci-fi dressed up in a fantasy costume. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And I mean, there's nothing wrong with sci-fi, good grief, but I mean, you know, right sci-fi, exactly. that's weird, right? And I guess it's also this this uh, prescriptiveness that can be very frustrating that I think also people tend to be reacting when they grumble about this stuff. It's not so much having a magic system is bad. It's that you literally see successful authors, who I won't be a jerk in name, giving talks where they're like, how to write a novel, designing your magic system. It's like, is that, you have to do that? <laughs> like, is that the key to success? You know, jeez. How to write your novel, taking the wonder out of the wondrous is my, what it sounds like to me when I hear that. I don't know, it drives me yeah. up the wall. So yeah, it's, it's but, but if people like it, you know, after a while you start going, well, I mean, I do want people to buy the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, gee. Yeah. But, so this, is, this is encouraging to hear what you were saying. Yeah, um, I mean. We'll talk more about your book. Uh, yeah. Oh, no, I was actually just going to say, like, I think, there's no issue with it being soft, provided that there is some kind of limitation. Like, I think there's an issue if it's soft and it's used by the main character and there's no cost. I think that's where the issue comes. But when it's like the main character has fallen into this wondrous land that makes absolutely no sense and is basically a fever dream of danger and <laughs> magic, and horses. Yeah. Like there's no need. <laughs> I love that part. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I just think there's simply no need to explain that to high heavens because as well, how would they know? Like unless we're going to be 100% yeah. omnipotent, which I don't particularly like, how would they know? <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. And how, and how about when it's like, you know, villains and secondary characters? Again, using magic, but we don't have it explained. I mean, does that feel sort of kosher or does it feel too easy? Like, oh, anything can happen. The author just says it does. I think it feels... Which is yeah. ultimately all the fiction, but I, you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> I think it's fine, to be honest. Like, it's just, it has to feel like it is in place with the rest of the story. And I think that's often something that's thrown around, particularly after Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that's the thing is like there's a lot of feeling now that like things have to be earned or things in the story have to be earned. And I think that's probably similar to what I felt with Tower of the Elephant where suddenly he feels compassionate. Mm. I think it's the same kind of thing. If you've never seen magic suddenly pop up and then the villain can do it, then how does that feel earned? And if you've never seen someone being compassionate before and then they're suddenly compassionate, how does that feel earned? And I think that's where I kind of come. Do you think that would have worked for you more if instead of it being a standalone story, it had been like the first chapter in a novella or a novel? Because it's got to show up the first time at some time. No, I think it would have. And I think, you know, it's definitely something that could have been bettered for me as long as I pushed through. And normally if I'm going to read a book, I will push through at least till midway. So then I'll know whether or not to put it down or not. So and do you think in short story format, not that, again, I'm trying to bully you into liking Harry <laughs> Elephant, but it's, it's interesting to talk about these these ele- ele- elephants. Wow, these elements of storyline, uh, storytelling, the elephants of storytelling. Listen, I've been up since 3.30 a.m., sorry. Um, what do you think, even if there had just been one little clue, like maybe in the tavern, you know, he kills a guy and all that stuff happens, but then, like, he flips a coin to, you know, a beggar on the way out, or just, I don't know, that's a terrible example, but, you know, I mean, this but better, you know, does something to foreshadow the compassion yes. at the end. If just one moment... Do you think that would have made a yes, difference? Yes, I do think so. I think, like, even just, like, if he moved back and said, like, a little prayer over their body or something like that, that's definitely something that probably would have helped me to get on board with it a little bit more rather than it just being, like, this Arnold Schwarzenegger type of character who's just, like, <laughs> killing everyone and then, like, see ya. <laughs> like... Actually, final question before we move on to the rest of the interview. We've been, obviously, the story discussion was going to be the meat and mm. potatoes, but still... How did you imagine Conan in your head? Um, yeah. Did he look like Arnold Schwarzenegger from the movie? Or? He actually <laughs> didn't. Um, I'm trying to think how to describe how I imagined Conan. Kind of like um, Tarzan kind of vibes, I think is what I got. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because you know what I'll do is after we finish recording this, I'll send you a picture of Conan as he was drawn in the comics that Marvel started doing in the 70s and 80s that – for a lot of people, like, that's what he looks like. And uh, actually, an artist named Frank Frazetta, who was, like, the artist, if you got his painting on your book in the 70s, boom, it sold. Okay. Um, he also kind of defined this, actually, and I think about it, I think before the comics did, and the comics took from him. Um, and it's just kind of like a huge muscle-bound guy, as you can imagine, but he also looks like he can move, like he's not a brick. And he just kind of has, has, like, a black ball cut that goes down to his uh, shoulders, almost. And then like a fringe it. and it's, and he's not, but it makes in a sense, you're like, yeah, why would he be fashionable? But you know, um, <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he's like, you know, women love him because he's a protagonist and that's what happens, I guess. But uh, he, um, he's not what you call handsome. Okay. From a certain, from at least not, at least not, you know, he doesn't look like a Hemsworth or whatever, uh, you know. Nice Australian <laughs> export there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was about to say, bring it back to your homeland. Uh, we need more Hemsworths. We're running out. Last thought, any quick thoughts on the Amaro tale, yeah. um, Z? So I actually, yeah. Because um, you, you mentioned early on, you were like, oh, I like this one, but then it didn't wind up in your yeah. three, you know, that you dug, that you mentioned And yesterday. you know what I think it is? 
I think it's length because I still, looking back, really liked it. I loved connecting with Maro. I liked experiencing his struggles. I'm loath to say it was low stakes, but I liked the fact that in the end we're going back to get a baby calf. Like, I just think that was something mm. that I enjoyed that felt quite nice. Also, the other thing that I really liked was not being in a typical kind of medieval Europe kind of setting, which as a heavy fantasy yeah. reader, it does tend to be very Eurocentric. So Yeah, yeah. No, Amaro was written by a guy called Charles Saunders, who he came right uh, just before the bust happened, unfortunately. So... This sampler of six stories I sent you, the publication dates stretch across about 90 years. Did you feel any coherency in like theme style character, you know, any, any of that across these tales? Did they feel of a tradition or did they just kind of feel willy nilly? Hmm. I would say for the newer stories and also Z, actually basically everything except for Tower of the Elephant. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mazie kind of sits in the middle, actually. It is it is sort of a classic story, yeah. but it was from the early 80s. It's sort of the oldest, uh, sort of the newest of the classic ones. Yeah. Uh, or maybe late 70s, pardon me, but whatever. It was second yeah. wave. Uh, it was in the middle. So yeah. I think for those, I could feel a bit of similar similarity. I would say, actually, I'll retract that. Mm. The Return of the Sorceress and the Tower of the Elephant probably stuck out as being different from the rest to me. Huh. Whereas... The other four, I felt like I could kind of feel a bit more of a similarity. Um, I think the biggest similarity, though, was Black God's Kiss to The Gate of Fist for me. Oh, Those were very, very similar stories. Cora will really enjoy hearing that. <laughs> she loves Jarell. He's written some really great essays on her stories. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yes. And it felt very similar in the haziness, which is what I really enjoyed. (laughs) Was there anything that struck you as different about these stories that you don't see or often see in other like contemporary fantasy? Hmm. (laughs) I will say that they definitely felt different to read. I'm not sure the extent to which I could say that I felt like the elements in it weren't present in other fantasy novels. So I think there's similarities probably across the whole genre. But I think the key difference is that this has got more of a focus on the adventure than a lot of the other fantasy that I read, which tends to have more of a focus on the characters. Right. And then these tend to be stories of individuals, uh, once in a while a duo, and tend to not be epic in scope. Again, there's always exceptions. Elric has some pretty big stories. But uh, a lot of the time it's like they're just kind of motivated by, you know, I'm trying to get some money. I'm trying to survive a weird situation. It's it's not necessarily selfish, but it's self motivated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not you're you. If you have like five people going on a quest to save the kingdom, you're not reading sword and sorcery. It's pretty much the agreed upon okay. thing with sword yeah. and sorcery. Okay. In that case, I guess like yes, you could say it's different, but I also feel like there are so many stories I've read where it is just one person for most of it, mm. and then they'll occasionally fit back into their troop, or like they'll be there like. If we go to Moreno Garcia's other novel that I really liked, Gods of Jade and Shadow, mm. the main character there is with a god that she's accidentally freed. And her job is to get that god back all of his body parts so that he can get lost, mm-hmm. <laughs> so he can go back to hell. Um, so I do feel like there's a lot of individual individualism in fantasy as a whole. It's just whether or not it fits back into the greater group from time to time. Okay. Something I really struggled with was whether or not to send you along with the stories. My, uh, I mean, there's a few that are quite good. Harold Andrew Jones's definition, I think, is quite strong. 
but my personal favorite is by Brian Murphy because it's flexible. You know, if I, you haven't heard me talk about this already on the show, it's got like seven points. And the idea is that not that you have to have all seven, it's not a checklist. It's this idea that if you've got like enough, like maybe four, let's say just to pick a number and the story kind of feels right, like maybe you've got sword and sorcery going on here. You know, you just kind of look for these qualities rather than a prescriptively, you know, check mark. Uh, them. And I wonder if I should have sent those to you as a way of kind of guiding you on this, but I also didn't want to mess with your perceptions going in. I wanted you to come in, you know, as sort of blank slate as possible. Do you think you'd enjoy seeing characters from novels you've read, the sort of your epic fantasy and other kind of things that you mentioned? Do you think you'd enjoy seeing any of them dropped into a sword and sorcery style adventure? Of course. I think that's always something you want. I think like, especially with like the quicker pacing and stuff, it's it's a bit like, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory way before I say this word, it's just what I'm thinking. It's just like a bit like how fans write fan fiction though. I think the more you can see your characters and the more that you can see how they react to different scenarios, the happier you're going to be as a reader, right? Even if it's not something that you would see in their overarching kind of life because it's not relevant to the giant story that's being told. That's always something that I think I'm like, well, what would happen if this character went and did this? Like, this would be great to see. So I think, yeah, it would be really enjoyable and it would be such a fun thing to actually see in a lot of series that are concluded and that you want to stay concluded. Like, you don't want a million spin-offs that make absolutely no sense. Yeah. <laughs> but you want a little bit more content. Definitely. That would be a really fun kind of way to do it. And I think the short story format really lends itself to that. So yeah, you can just kind of peek yeah. at the space between stories or whatever, and, and maybe not even place it in the continuity. You just have a subtle clue like the character's age, or you know they've lost an eye at some point. Yes. Maybe they still have the eye, uh, you know, in the story you're reading. And actually, that makes me think: How did you feel? Because this is another grumble that occasionally comes up in the sword and sorcery uh, fan base. <laughs> they go, "Oh, people just want to read these big phone books, these door wedges," you know. Uh, and I mean, the funny thing is, they all, all all of them will have read and enjoyed such books. Of course, uh, I'm, I'm no exception. But I do find, especially as I get older, you know, as I head into my teens, um, <laughs> um, I I find it harder to commit to books that are like three, four, five, six hundred pages. And part of what really got me into Sword and Sorcery over these last few years has been, oh, joy, I can get a complete narrative in 5,000, 10,000 words or a novel that's like 200 pages. And each chapter feels almost like a little story unto itself, not necessarily just a sliver of a big cake that I'm eating. Yeah. As someone who reads a lot of contemporary fantasy, which, I mean, you laid it all out there, 15 books, old trilogies, you know, one of them's a quadrilogy. <laughs> you know, you are, it's, 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 I mean, it's, I know you're not buying fiction like ham by the pound, but it can sound that way sometimes to someone who prefers the shorter end of the spectrum. Was it kind of, you know, a, not a fun break to read short stories? I don't know how often you do that uh, in, in your general reading, do you? Yeah, um, I actually don't tend to read them that often. And it was actually quite funny because it was off the back of me already reading some shorter stories as a bit of a break. Oh. And I think it was actually while I was wedding planning. Um, so it was really good to have something short, digestible, that I could chuck into 10 minutes <laughs> or an hour. Just depends how quick I read it. So, yeah, it was actually quite enjoyable. And it was actually interesting because it brought me back a lot because I think Oddly, when I was a teenager, I was reading a lot of short stories and I was also when I was writing short stories. And that was actually something I struggled with in my own writing was extending things out and learning to take time on things. And I think since doing that and since enjoying longer stories, that's been what I've pivoted to but by the same token. It's 
totally enjoyable to jump into these shorter stories and be like, yes, I know the payoff's coming and I know that I can be done and dusted with this and know what happened in it and not have forgotten the first (laughs) half of this book. Yeah. (laughs) You'd have to go check the wiki and be like, who's this guy? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, uh, and they can get quite short. I mean, I told you a bit about over email, a guy called Lord Dunsany, who famously would write stories as little as 200 words that would have a great kick at the end. And you're like, you know what? Good story. <laughs> don't feel cheated or, you know, it cut short. Yeah. And uh, Cora's story, uh, I don't know the exact word count, but the magazine it's in, Whetstone, intentionally keeps it quite tight. You can go as low as 1,500, but no higher than 2,500. And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... You know, let's say about 350 words a page on average. Yeah, it's not a lot. Yeah. But it's really a fun challenge to work with those, those limitations. And I wonder if maybe, you know, if at any point while you're working on your novel, you want to take a break and write a very short story and submit it somewhere. That'd be kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah. No. If you wanted to recommend one or more of these authors' uh, stories to someone else who is unfamiliar with sword and sorcery, what might you tell them? We'll go with the specific story first, because I always think that I fare better with specific. Sure. Um, so we'll say, like, if we're talking about The Gate of Mists or actually Black God's Kiss, I think I would tell them it's a fantasy story about a person who has to go out and fight things. But it's got a lot of these cerebral elements. It's got a lot of these things that will draw you in and really make you think about what they are. And it's something that you can read and have hints of like poeticism. You can have all of these beautiful moments and you'll be done with it before the end of your lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And now here's the hard one. Um, is there anyone in your life, it didn't do it for you, but is there anyone that you think you know who might like Tower of the Elephant and how might you sell that to them? It's actually funny. Um, so my husband is definitely more someone who would have enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. And I showed it to him and I was like, oh, yeah, I think you'd like this. And I kind of, and this is probably reductive, but I compared it to like Indiana Jones and kind of stuff like that. And then said, you might like this. Honestly, not a terrible comparison, uh, if only because Indiana Jones has its roots in sort of serial adventure tales, which were kind of the filmic equivalent of the pulp stories. Uh, from the 30s and 40s and so actually that makes a lot of sense yeah nice i'm glad to have picked that up as someone who actually has very little knowledge (laughs) um yeah i think that's kind of what i'd go to i think to be honest something that i was thinking about earlier was that the tower of the elephant would probably do well with younger people specifically i'm thinking about people like my younger brothers and stuff but like people who like 18 to 20 like still quite like into a lot of that very like action oriented still into yeah yeah that's what i'm looking for like the action oriented kind of stories i think that's what it would really go to um and that's who i think would find the most appeal in these okay and so here's the real big question that i primed you for in advance how would you recommend cheerleaders of the genre like myself try to get more readers under 35 or even under 18 or under 20 whatever you know into the genre because it does exist mostly in short stories which sadly people don't read as much as novels and you know there's this feeling of like oh you can tell people it doesn't take very long but you're still competing with like video games and whatever else which i mean people have been crying about regarding literacy since the radio was invented so i try not to get too on that but it is you know there there's a lot of competition for people's attentions and you know someone could say oh i could watch so many tiktoks and the time it takes me to read it you know tower of the elephant um (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. What do you what do you think? What would what would be your attack? 
Yeah. I mean, as much as I said earlier that I'd tell people that you can finish this before your lunch break is over, I actually don't think it's the best selling point. Like, because I know that if I'm told, oh, you can read this, it's a really short book, it still wouldn't make me want to read the book. I actually need like that selling point, that call to action that would get me there. Yeah. I think something that I've noticed and that I've spoken to a lot of people about is that a lot of the fiction that's drawing people in nowadays is stuff that has kind of underrepresented people at the forefront. And I think given that this genre focuses so much on outsiders, having recommendations there that go, okay, well, this person is from the LGBTQ community or like this person is a woman and she's gone through this, this and this, and then she's adventuring and like, that's the kind of story you're going to be in. I think that's something that will draw people in. I also think that it's just about, yeah, like choosing your stories for your audience. So if you know that it's someone who's a younger guy, maybe you'll give them some of the action-oriented ones and sprinkle in some of the more like cerebral elements. But then if it's the younger girl or if it's anyone who like, you know, has a specific interest in the romance stories, maybe you'll give them some of those short stories with those romance elements in it first and then see how much you can build it out from there i think it's always just sneaking in (laughs) what you want them to read (laughs) right and how um you know i mean it's hard to say this without sounding at ten thousand bloody years old even when as i said tiktok i was like that's the word that ancient newscasters use to signify that they have been told by a younger person about something young people like (laughs) you know i mean i'm sure there's something coming on the horizon that even makes tiktok look old at this point but uh yeah in terms of like avenues like you know how might you recommend because i've looked a lot at booktube and booktube actually seems kind of crap for book reviews it tends to be mostly people just covering the big bums and seats authors who don't really need it because that will in turn bring bums and seats to their videos like yeah, I, I, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah like <laughs> yeah it's not really a great way to learn about anything new you know yeah i like there is like some coverage of indie authors and stuff but even then i do think that tends to focus on already popular indie authors and that's going to be something that's an issue with any of these platforms though. Cause like if you post a book that nobody knows about on Bookstagram, you'll still probably get engagement from the people who follow you, right? But you're less likely to draw in more people because it is that bums and seat kind of thing. I think the same thing happens with TikTok and stuff. The biggest thing, if it's possible, that gets people is like books looking pretty. It's like there's a lot of like, oh no, these short stories. I mean, they're often like a PDF or mm. a few pages in a magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that is like such an issue. But it is like it is something that actually tempts a lot more people into reading things than you'd expect. Like it's actually happened to me now. Really? Yeah. Like, and it's so funny because like I was always like, no, I'm not going to judge a book by its cover. And then I'm like, I saw this beautiful book with a dragon embossed in gold on it. I'm reading that now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. People say that, but like yeah. literally we do it all the time. And if it didn't matter, every book would look like a package of no name cereal or something, you know, <laughs> like just, just book. Yeah, you'd have the plain packaging laws. This is uh, 18 metric units of book. Enjoy. Um, yeah, exactly. So I think, yeah, like it's unfortunate, but I think aesthetics and appropriate aesthetics or something that really matters to a lot of people these days. But then like, well, like we were talking about earlier with these magazines that are put forward, 
I still think there's like potential for that to be done in a way that gets people who are more aesthetically driven into it. Like if there's a lot of thought put into it and it's like appropriately kind of posted and like looked at, I think it could spread well. It's just that for a lot of these things, especially TikTok, especially Instagram, the driver is the aesthetic. Like if you've got an uglyish book, it's hard to make it look good. Well, you know, the funny thing is I didn't get into this with you because A, we only have so much time to talk and B, it's a podcast, it's not a visual medium, but Sword and Sorcery does have actually a pretty strong art tradition. Uh, Frank Frazetta is like the Jesus of it. Uh, you know, his name always gets mentioned and I do recommend Googling him, but there's a whole bunch of other names and there's a whole bunch of like people now, not just legends of part, days of yore, who do really incredible stuff. And like Tales of the Magician's Skull, part of the reason that I like that magazine is it is very high production value, glossy, lovely painted covers, uh, black and white, wonderful illustrations all the way through. Every story gets a, a drawing, you know. Uh, Whetstone is a lower budget situation, but they always have good art on the cover. And yeah, like I think I think there is room for using, uh, there is definitely what you might call a sword and sorcery aesthetic uh, that could be leveraged. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about maybe... Um, for TikTok and, and stuff like that, was something me and the, the fellas, I mean, there's people of all genders, but, you know, uh, me and the gang, uh, I should say, uh, have been uh, chatting about on the Whetstone Discord server, which is like my fave SNS hangout online, is, you know, somebody, because none of us have time and energy, but maybe somebody, uh, you know, could make like a bunch of short TikToks about, you know, introducing individual classic characters and new authors and what makes a story sword and sorcery? How is it different? You know, well, let's talk about this element, you know, for 60 seconds or yeah. whatever. I mean, do you see any leverage on that? Or is it going to be just like somebody's just flicking through and they're like, this is not, um, you know, a funny prank or a cool image. Fuck it. Like, <laughs> like, I actually do think there is a way to leverage it. And there is actually a format that already fits that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like there's a, is it the TikTok dance when yeah. they point to the uh, text? Uh, or uh, no. It's not. It's not. <laughs> it's kind of like this one. And like, you'd have to be much more dexterous than I am because I tried to do it one time and I was like, this is actually impossible to hold the phone and do this at the same time. <laughs> um, I think maybe they're using like a tripod. Yeah, yeah. That's not in my <laughs> setup at the moment. So, but like essentially they turn through the pages and then they go convincing you to read X based on its aesthetic. So you might say like convincing you to read Conan's Tales based on its aesthetic and you show all of these gorgeous artworks and you like have in text there like things about how the story works and what are the features that you would see in each of these tales. And you could do the same thing for the genre and just have like the thing flip through and be like convincing you to read Sword and Sorcery based on its like hallmarks and then kind of go through that. Okay. And how about like, I don't know, reading extremely captivating bits of text, like a really badass description or something in like a 20, 30 second video or whatever. Yeah. I and mean, is there anything like that you've seen or? Not really. About like... the words in the bloody books on social media in general that yeah. you've seen? <laughs> I have seen like stuff where people do quotes and stuff, but a lot of that happens more in the captioning than in the video itself. Right. And that's kind of an issue. You have to make the trade-off between how far and how wide you want it to go versus the quality and whether you want to pinpoint it on the quality or whether you want to kind of go like a sprinkler system and then see who you can capture from that sprinkler. Okay. And now real talk, uh, something you probably encountered actually as you were researching um, and preparing for your own novel, uh, something that gets thrown out a lot is authors need to have a newsletter. But seriously, how many author newsletters are you subscribed to? No wrong answer, just the, unless it's a false one. Uh, it's one, and it's Oliver Brown. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, and honestly, as you may have noticed, I mean, uh, my newsletter has kind of withered on the vine as I found, you know, I like doing this podcast. <laughs> Um, no. <laughs> you know, the newsletter, I, I, it works for some people, and I am subscribed to a few that I do really enjoy. But I, I find if I'm going to be actually typing, I'd rather be typing my book. Yeah. And not as true, everybody has email. That's the argument about newsletters, right? Everybody's got email. You know, you don't, have to, and with email, you don't have to worry about the platform turning to crap like Tumblr or something. You know, it'll always be there. Good old email. And I think, <laughs> yeah. But email's also kind of a task, even if it's like a really nice email from an old friend or something, it's still like a thing you have to attend to. I never view it the same way as like, oh, a podcast I get to enjoy yeah. or a video I get to, oh, I can watch that later. You know, so yeah, how do you feel about newsletters? Obviously, I haven't signed up for any except uh, mine. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that goes out maybe once <laughs> a year now. Yeah. And also, I found it very hard to grow, by the way. Hmm. I, I've been doing that newsletter for years. And I, one of the things that really slowed me down was when I realized that I could shout about it as much as I want. But it was very hard to grow. I think newsletters yeah. can be grown. I, I did actually start reading a book about it the hmm. other week thinking, oh, what if, you know, yeah, it was recommended by a friend who has got a newsletter I like. They said, oh, check out this guide. You know, we're trying tricks from it. And I read it. And about a third of the way in, I just got overwhelmed because I couldn't fathom having the bandwidth to do all these tricks to promote the newsletter, do all these tricks to promote the podcast, do all these tricks to promote the Patreon. And then ultimately it's all in service of promoting the novel that I need to write. Yeah. <laughs> it just got too much to me. I, th I think people need to pick one or two avenues of promotion that work for them as a person, like something they enjoy doing and that can hopefully get some results. Obviously that's important too. And stick to that. Yeah. But man, some people just think like, it's like they don't understand why publishers exist. They think because you can self-pub, you can literally do everything, but you can't literally be 12 people with a budget of X thousands or, or, or whatever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't know. You, you yeah. and I were talking about this before uh, we started here. You know, you you Bookstagram, right? Yep. I will confess, I have been a, a grumpy old son of a bitch sometimes when I've seen Bookstagram and been like, <laughs> oh, nice picture of your books beside a tree. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, that tells me lots about what's in them. Uh, oh, is the cover a picture of a sword uh, just hanging in the breeze? You know, all <laughs> oh, that tells me all kinds of stuff about the character of the plot. It definitely intrigues me. No, it doesn't, as you can tell from me being a big grump here. You know, <laughs> I, I do. I must confess, a lot of contemporary fantasy uh, art, uh, cover art, doesn't do for me. And okay. I know it's not the the author's fault by and large. You know, the publisher has said it, and the publishers want to choose what works. And they want to choose something that will signify what it is to the reader, broadly speaking, quick and easy, and something that also works as like a thumbnail, right? Looking online, that's another thing that's had a huge influence on it. And something a lot of you know, the older hands of sword and sorcery, and the younger ones who've gone back and discovered the older stuff, lament is. You go back and look at fantasy cover art from the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, and it is something. You get some incredible, beautiful, painted, illustrated work. You get, you know, like anything, there were some dominant trends, you know, there's a bit of sameness. Yeah. But nothing like now if I walk into a bookstore and I look on the shelves and there's like two cover types. Yeah. You know, it's just like a sword in, it's a sword in, in a void or a person, and you're kind of looking at, they're kind of not quite looking over their shoulder at you, and behind them, or in front of them, but behind them from your point of view, uh, is like a yeah. castle and maybe a dragon or something. And like, you know, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. It's seeing that, it's, it's having them take up all the oxygen. And I think that's the same thing to what I was talking about earlier yeah. with uh, Sword and Sorcery fans grumbling about, you know, Brandon Sanderson, magic systems, door wedges. None of this stuff is bad. And as I say, most of these people grumbling have read and enjoyed all these things. It's just this frustration at them taking up all the room, same as going to the beer store and it's nothing but IPAs. Yeah. You know, like I just, you want more uh, 
of a different sort of diversity. Although mm. coming back to what you said about that, I do think that is very important. That is a very big element. And yeah. definitely there's a lot of people who want more and are pushing for it. And, you know, or if they're not even remotely diverse, like it was truly, you know, doing what they can with their limited powers and platform to try and yeah. help promote people who are good unto themselves, let's be clear. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're really, but also are, you know, not like a cishet white guy. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. Nothing wrong with them, some of my best friends, etc. But again, it's like I don't want to walk into the beer store and have 95% IPAs. I don't want to look at yeah. and see 95% white straight guys writing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely pushes on that front. And even a probably too ambitious secret project I'm collaborating with somebody on, but we'll see if it happens that kind of relates to this. Anyway, all this being said and done, um, yes. this has gone a little long, but I've been happy to do it. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? you know, sort of stray ideas, things that came to you while you were reading these stories and thinking about chatting with me about this subject that you might want to share? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest stray thought is the one that I've raised throughout is, like, I just need more characterization to get into things. <laughs> and, like, that's kind of my hope is that if I read something further in this genre and if I'm reading further that I get a bit more of that because I think that's what would actually make me get hooked into it is, like, feeling a bit more from the characters mm -hmm. and seeing a lot more of that, like actually being empathizing. And, and, and it's not necessarily that they have to be dramatically changed by the end of a story, just that you kind of get a little more in their heads maybe. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Like there's no need for it to be like, well, I started out not caring about anyone. And as it turns out, the friends we <laughs> Yeah. The, the horrible, weird like... alien elephant wizard is the friend I made along the way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's not that it's more just like, I don't want to just see a cardboard cutout or like what I've already seen a thousand times before. And I understand like with the older stories, it is because they were the trailblazers, not the other way around. But by the same token, as someone in 2022 reading these, yeah. these, it can feel like that. So I think, yeah, as I read more of these, I think it would be good to see a little bit more personality, a little bit more like actual humanity okay. coming through i should see if i can find a fafford and gray mouser story for free online and send that to you because those two fellas they're generally they are who they are you know they're in, in later books actually you did age them up to middle age and send them off to a different setting for the final two books which is interesting but for the majority of their tales they're these guys and by the end they're still these guys and part of the fun is often <laughs> seeing them almost try to change it just doesn't happen man they kind of snap back but uh but you do really get to know them and i think you would really like that yeah. Um, plus they're just fun stories they're very they're, they're much lighter tone of i think of like remember i mentioned earlier there's kind of a holy trinity of the classics and that's conan elric with his moping uh who's kind of conan turned inside out in a lot of ways and then there's fashion gray master kind of twin take one spot of the trilogy yeah um and yeah they're more swashbuckling and i think you might get a kick out of them plus again they have hugely influenced all kinds of big names that uh, including ones that I, I imagine you've read so it is fun to go back and read the older stories and connect the dots there not just in a you know i've seen this trope before but here it is the first time uh but also seeing how it's executed in a way so well as to inspire all that invitation yeah. so actually sorry i'm just thinking one final question if you were to go off and try and find more Sword and Sorcery, and you didn't have me here, obviously, uh, or, or no, <laughs> my podcast didn't exist, and yada yada, how do you think you might go about trying to find more? I think I would do the same thing I do for anything else I want to find. I would use my best friend Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that's a pretty straightforward. Yeah. I would, I would uh, pull up my magic yeah. rectangle and uh, punch at it <laughs> until I get what I want. Yeah. <laughs> 
that sound rude? It's not meant to be. No, no, it's no, just no. Exactly it's how I Google does render a lot of very sensible questions kind of silly when you think about it, but at the same time, like, I don't know. <laughs> Is yeah, it, is it, no, it's because it kind of reverses it because I guess it you know maybe what would you Google because it does reverse engineer my earlier question about how would you promote it you yeah know, if you were Googling I mean would you literally just be like more sword and sorcery plays lol hunter yeah yep all right fair I mean totally fair yeah probably also something along the lines of like best sword and sorcery so lists and then, like, of recommendations kind of would be good to yeah and I think there's also like another thing I do is like if you enjoyed blah and then just type that in and see if it comes out with anything yeah <laughs> yeah no no that's good okay good to know because yeah something uh you know me and these guys are all talking about you know oh, how do we find the same one again guys in the non-gendered form is building lists of like recommendations and we've been having fun doing polls of like yeah what is the one faffron and gray master story do you think if you want to show those guys to someone you know what is the one elric story and we haven't voted on Conan, but I must admit this is going to change my thoughts if, that, if he comes up and somebody goes, Tara the Elephant, because <laughs> that does tend to be the one people right. say. But I know this is uh, two people who've gone, eh, you know, <laughs> when I've shown it to them. I love it. Um, I'm not alone. <laughs> you no, know, you're not. You're my, you're my dad. Uh, my, the other professional <laughs> young person in my life. What? Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my dad i'm younger no my dad's younger than me i mean my dad am i a teenager what's the chronology this this the lore of this podcast episode is terrible mm. um <laughs> it's a bit like red dwarf if yeah you that. yeah and where it's um mister forgotten his name yeah, yeah. he turns out, to, be he turns out to have left himself as a baby under the pool table yeah yeah um so uh, as we draw this to a close could you tell listeners a little bit about writing your first fantasy novel, a bit of the premise, if you're comfortable sharing, and uh, yep. where uh, people can find you online, uh, author-wise. Cool. So my novel that I'm working on is unnamed at the moment, but it essentially follows the story of a girl who's leaving a horrible situation to go into a cult because she thinks that's going to be better. Is it? She doesn't realise it's a cult Sorry. at first, of course, <laughs> but it turns out to be rather shit. <laughs> Just bad but snacks, that cult, really. The, the terrible snacks. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, I'm it's like bad. Do. No, no, it's all good. It's just you know bad vibes and like just you know not everything she was seeking out in her life. Um, but that cult also teaches and utilizes magic, and that's a lot of how it actually has established its kind of locations across the globe. And then the story becomes: How does she escape this? And what happens next now that she's escaped? Have you watched the um, Elizabeth Olsen movie from before she got sucked into the Marvel Universe? Elizabeth Olsen? Not, not, not neither of the twins. Yeah. yeah, Elizabeth Olsen. No, I know who she is. Sorry, you <laughs> squinted <laughs> real hard. And I was like, now I'm the young like... person. Um, but no. uh, yeah, I know who Elizabeth Olsen yeah. is. Uh, me and like mm. six billion other people at this point. But anyway, uh, Elizabeth Olsen. Um, 2011, I want to say, and it's a funny title. It's actually a bit tricky to say because it's like four variations on the same name. Okay. So it's like Mary, Martha, Marceline, whatever. But if you just like mash that into Google, you'll get, you'll be like, did you mean this movie okay. everybody messes up the title of? Um, and yeah. it's about her having just at the very beginning of the movie escaped a rural, uh, sort of, I think it's kind of New Englandish, North of New York, whatever, uh, a rural okay. kind of cult and escaped to her sister, uh, who's a bit older, married and has a bit more together, escaped to her sister and her sister husband's um, cottage by lake and she won't tell them like what's up she's just been off the grid for a while and yeah it's a neat story about her trying to like be a person again after having been in this cult that's very prescriptive of how you behave and it's very different from society and then this constant nagging fear that they're going to come find her and then it gets you know flashes back and forward to you know her how she wound up with them and all that stuff 
and it's very rooted in real life. Like it's not, don't look for wizards and stuff in it, but um, it's incredibly compelling and it might be, I don't know, some inter- you know, some good inspiration yeah. for what you're working on. Seems right up my alley, I'm not going to lie. Like I said, cults are very on brand for me right now. Which also actually you should maybe look into <laughs> some Lovecraft because Lovecraft isn't sword and sorcery, but he hugely influenced it. Him and Robert E. Howard were big buddies who wrote each other endless letters, those huge compiled books of their letters. And Lovecraftian weird old gods and stuff, you'll catch them showing up in Conan stories. And the continent that Conan okay. adventures on will get mentioned in Lovecraft stories. And it's just like funsies, like they're inferring connections. It's not like a big lore thing you have to learn. Yeah. Uh, but it's really, but yeah, it's really cool. And, and Lovecraft's horror, I mean, yeah, cults are a big part. I'll just say that. So again, now yeah, maybe I can yeah. send you some recommendations after this. But yeah, all right. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me, Soph. It's been really fun and also really fun to actually like have moving mouths and voices when we've been kind of chatting for 12 years. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, were you a human before this? We may never know. You were Schrodinger's human. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, my humanity redeemed as a uh, a little boy of 14. Uh, you met me when I was two. Um, online, mm. yes. I'm definitely not turning 40 in a couple of weeks. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> well, on that note, I don't know. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Bye. 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 <laughs> So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me, and Soph, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>